Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wicked Bandwidth Podcast. I am your host, Brian Fonfara, and joining me, as always, we've got Wicked Bandwidth's co-founder, Mike Murphy. Mike, how are you doing today? Brian, I'm doing great. Having a great right. time here. Good deal. Always always great to talk to you on the podcast. Uh, we also have a special guest joining us this week. Uh, it's Rich Modulesky of CBRE. And Rich, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, ready for the cold break. Ready for summer. Uh, but, but all in while, you're doing just fine. Good deal. All right. So to jump right in, um, Mike, I'm going to start with you. And Mike, if you can tell us just a little bit about the importance of having a good, strong network for clients. Yeah, Brian, you know, we've covered this topic, I think, a number of times. And, and what we've seen in the marketplace, certainly over the last handful of years, is that the shift to cloud has really necessitated a different level of network, uh, especially for the small and mid-size customer base out there. Because if you, you really stop and think about it, which sometimes, you know, it's hard to to, to see the trees through the forest, but, it, you know, every one of the applications that small businesses use for the most part are either in the cloud or going to the cloud, whether it's your accounting software and you use QuickBooks or it's your CRM and it's Salesforce. All of these things reside outside the four walls of your office and the primary connection method to get to all of those business tools that you use every day is through an internet connection. And so, you know, at Wicked, what we've also noticed is that you know, new buildings are, are popping up with small tenants that used to be, you know, uh, probably in a different industry or different vertical and not very bandwidth dependent. Now there's more dependency on bandwidth. There's just not a plethora of network providers in these locations. And so many folks are stuck using a technology or a type of connection that's really not meeting their business requirements. So at Wicked, that's one of the hypotheses we use to, to found the companies to say, go out and let's bring you know, the right bandwidth to the right people um, through a brand new network that we built from the ground up. So it's been it's been exciting. You know, one of the challenges that we do see is, you know, with tenants in real estate and there's not always a closed loop there between the office being selected and the network that's available in that office building and how do you bridge that gap so people don't end up in locations that, you know, you have a real struggle trying to get connectivity. And, and Rich, thanks so much for joining us today. I think you can probably shed some light on that. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's, an evolving, it's an evolving trend, right? Like, you know, in prior years, even two, three years ago, the corporate site selection or office site selection process was generally director of real estate, CFO, COO, CEO, you know, C-suite and real estate related. But because, as you mentioned, the reliance around stable connectivity or high, high bandwidth for you know, cloud applications, the IT personnel, whether that's director level, CIO level, what have you, is very much part of the site selection process to make sure that the facilities or office buildings that are being selected will uh, ultimately be adequate, more than adequate for what the technology needs are for. That's great. And Rich, if you could expand a little bit, um, talk to us about how network impacts real estate selection and what questions tenants should be asking uh, regarding the networks. Yeah, this is one that Mike and I have gone back a number of times on over the over the past couple of years on does does connectivity drive 
real estate decision making. And, and I think the verdict's still out, but it's definitely in the top three or four decision making uh, criteria at the moment. So we don't know yet if, you know, if a corporate user is using level three for their MPLS in the office building that they select doesn't have level three, whether or not that will stop a company from, um, from selecting a certain building. That being said, the CFOs and even CIOs to this degree now want to understand what the cost difference at least is going to be. So maybe it doesn't sway a decision, but they do want to they do want to know what's the financial impact, right? So some of the questions that tenants are asking or that we're suggesting they ask uh, beyond the baseline of what you know what carriers are available in your building today is do you have redundancy and path diversity coming out of your building? Do you have any WISP or wireless providers on the roof to buy, potentially provide a second or third pass uh, for redundancy? And also, um, I think what's becoming increasingly important is to understand if, if the carrier that you ultimately would like to use is not in the building today, what's the path to getting them into said building? You know, does the landlord have a, a stock building access agreement. Are they familiar with that process? Are they open to allowing uh, another carrier to enter the building? And what we found is because of the size of the deals, the office deals, that landlords will be much more uh, forthcoming and or um, willing to work with a tenant on a new carrier before the lease is signed versus after. And, and I don't think that's intentional. It's just when you have a captive audience and you need something specific done to make sure the lease is signed, you're going to have a little bit more me- more momentum, more leverage to, to ultimately get um, everything in place that you need before you, before you sign the lease. Rich, can I, uh, Brian, let me jump in here and ask Rich a couple of questions if it's mm-hmm. okay. Um, you know, Rich, so tenant goes out, looks for space. At what point... Do you see in your experience that they're starting to look at the network perspective? Is it early on or is it halfway through the process, the end of the process? When does that happen? I think it's still all over the place, Mike. I don't know that it's been uh, the, the importance or need to understand early is, is set in. I think a lot of tenants are experiencing pain. But from what we're generally seeing, um, the baseline is the IT team will be made aware of what carriers are in the facility, uh, at least from what the what the landlord believes are, is in the facility, and then post lease the circuit ordering process will, uh, starts. So um, I'm not sure if that totally answers your question, but if you want to refer, I could potentially rephrase if you have a different. No, I, I, I think it's I, I think you're right. It is all over the place, and you know it was probably a few days ago phone here at Wicked Rings and um, it's a tenant in one of the buildings that we had activated and they had signed a lease and it was a sublease which again that gets a little bit more interesting sometimes where that's usually a quick occupancy type thing they signed a lease and realized that they did not have any bandwidth available to them and they had you know 50 people moving into a space in about three days and they had no network and you know, fortunately for them, you know, we happen to be in the building and as a small company and, and you know, someone that, that reacts can react quickly to that, we were able to take 
care of it for them. But as I looked at it, I said, God, you know, how many people run into this situation and they're in a building that has, you know, more traditional carriers that have a 30, to your point, the installation process, a 30 or 45 day install, even if they're in the building, then what? And so I guess from a, a real estate perspective, you know, as a real estate professional, you know, how, how do you handle that process? Do you, when do you introduce the network question in your process with your tenants? It's a great question, and it kind of reminds me of the the '90s Miami Hurricanes. I don't know if you remember uh, Larry Coker's phrase "speed kills." Um, that's totally true in this space as well. And if you look at some of the telecom companies, newer telecom companies like down in New York with Pilot Fiber, that's their whole premise, right? We can have you up in two days. It's not 45 days. So in an ideal world, when we when we start working with a tenant uh, or an occupier we're telling them depending upon what their needs are you need to be ordering circuits 60 days in advance of when you're going to move in as as crazy as that seems for some of the larger telecom companies that's how long it takes to get just the basic internet circuit into an office building um, if we're mitigating damage on a lease that was signed and and we are uh, you know we weren't necessarily part of the process from the beginning and it's more damage or crisis control, you know, the first thing we're going to do is go to our list, figure out who's in the building, and, and ultimately, in, a, in an instance where you need to get connectivity within, a, you know, four or five business days, wireless is probably your best bet. It's stable, um, it's a growing industry, and the speed to market is obviously the, the big benefit. So, you know, if we can control the process, we want our clients to be, you know, signing orders 60 days in advance of the lease. If that's not possible, you know, maybe we'll order broadband circuits on a temporary basis until the internet can come, uh, you know, proper internet or DIA circuit can come in. But ultimately, if there's a WISP available or a more creative, uh, more entrepreneurial or more flexible company, kind of wicked, um, it makes the process a lot easier to, to get a circuit up and running fast. Do you have any more questions for him, Mike? I'm always full of questions, Brian, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's my thing. That's what I do. Uh, I guess, you know, you know, again, we see the struggle from two sides on this. You know, one, one is the, the tenant that didn't plan properly because we're not on the front end of that process, right? We're usually getting in at the end of the process when there's a problem. And so I'm sure there's plenty of tenants that handle it very smoothly, and we've seen, you know, the results of that working with some of our clients but more often than not we see a fire drill the other piece is from the property owner manager side you know sometimes they're not quite as responsive and, and easy to to provide access and there's probably a whole bunch of reasons why I guess I throw it back to you Rich to say if you were to give you know the, the tenant population out there a few tips what are the biggest tips that you'd give them to say, hey, when approaching real estate and telecom, here's what you need to do? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I, I wish I had a, a perfect, you know, magic bullet answer, but I think it's case by case. And if it's, um, if it's an instance where the tenant is moving into a new building and they haven't signed a lease yet, um, you absolutely just want to get in writing if, if the services are not already available in the building today, but you know that within 60 days or 45 days, the, the service that you want can be built in, 
you absolutely need to include as part of your lease language that you know if, if the building as it stands cannot service your needs that you have the right to um, bring another carrier into the property you know assuming a you know a, a mutually um, agreeable document can be signed between the carrier and the landlord and I don't think any landlord or owner or, or institutional owner for that matter has a problem with more carriers being in their building but I think in the past their experience with telecom providers hasn't been great um, so as a tenant if you're looking for a new office building I'm suggesting uh, that you just have that conversation early so the expectations are clear because the last thing you want to do is is have a carrier come in and, and not be able to come to terms with the landlord which is going to delay the process even further if um, if you're in the middle of a lease and you're bringing in a new service I think it just becomes a very open and candid conversation with the landlord about how whatever service you have today is not either going to meet the needs of your company uh, tomorrow and and just having that candid conversation um, but the reality is tenants always have the most leverage before they sign the lease so any Ass you might have on the telecom side need to come ideally before you actually execute your new lease. Yeah, and I think that's that's a that's a very important suggestion because I think after the the fact you know you mentioned the idea of uh, a critical audience type thing uh, where everybody's you know focused on getting the deal done. Once that happens and everybody kind of goes about their business and it's to your point, I, I think less about the property owner and manager saying, I don't want any more carriers in here. Philosophically, I've got a problem with that or operationally. It's just everybody gets busy doing different things and it becomes very hard to capture that attention again. So I think that's that's a huge suggestion. The other thing I would I would also say from our side of the world as a provider, the more you can help your provider with the the owner because you know again as a as a provider coming into the building we don't have any standing with that property owner we're not a tenant um, we're looking to come in and provide services to tenants where the tenants have a lot more standing with the landlord so if you can help be an advocate um, it sometimes will reduce the amount of time it takes to get approvals and for us especially with wireless the, the longest pole in the tent tends to be the approval process to get the wireless position on the roof and get everything done. It takes us a couple of days to deploy wireless and get our license and, you know, do our cabling. It sometimes takes months to get the property owner to sign off on the project. Yeah, I, I think I think what we're going to end up seeing, Mike, is we're really at the advent of cloud, right? I mean, cloud, as we know it, I don't know the specifics off the top of my head, but AWS has only been around for less than a decade, right? So we're still at the infancy of this business, and as more and more applications are pushed off ground and more and more goes into the cloud, everybody is going to need high bandwidth, um, uh, high capacity bandwidth to service their everyday needs. And we haven't talked about virtual reality or augmented reality or IoT or autonomous vehicles. All the buzzwords people love to use, but the reality is they require more bandwidth, right? And if you're a landlord today, maybe you don't you don't lose a deal because um, you don't have the proper fiber in the building or, or proper bandwidth. But tomorrow, I absolutely see that becoming the future. So I think it's going to be a learning curve for everybody. Um, but 
the next three, five, six, uh, you know, three, five, seven, ten years out, if you don't have readily available high capacity bandwidth in your building, you're going to have a tough time leasing the tech tenants because you're just not going to be able to support what they need. And once landlords feel or owners of property feel the burn of a lost opportunity, it's going to totally change the culture and the relationship between telecom providers and landlords. And Rich, I'm curious as to how all of this impacts price. Um, does does a location that has more carriers and more options typically cost more per square foot than a location with fewer options? Um, today, I think it's about the same. I don't think we're seeing a a delta in in office asking rents uh, because a building is well lit versus poorly lit. You know, I think the pricing is still tied back to you know kind of real estate one hundred and one with. Um, Location, 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 you know, locations, amenities, what have you. It's, I, I don't think we're seeing any uh, pricing differences based upon how many carriers are building today. You know, Rich, I think one of the questions that, you know, would be fascinating to get an answer on, and I, I don't know if there's any data on it at all, is what's the absorption rate like in buildings that have multiple carriers versus ones that don't? I mean, you and I talked about that a whole bunch of times. Um, I, I really wonder if there's less vacancy in buildings that, you know, they lease up faster if they've got multiple providers or if that just hasn't quite caught on yet to your point, cloud adoption still in process, all that great stuff. I mean, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we, and we actually ran some empirical analysis on that, uh, really on that specific uh, question. You know, do, do buildings with better connectivity have higher, uh, or I should say lower vacancy rates? The data came back uh, inconclusive, or it wasn't statistically significant, so to speak. Uh, that being said, what we did find is that obviously the buildings with the most carriers happened to be, generally speaking, buildings that were very well leased. Now, my personal opinion is that the buildings with the most carriers tend to be the really large office towers, like the Hancock Tower, the Prudential Tower, One Boston Place. You know, these are one you know, million square foot buildings. And obviously in a million square foot building, you have 50, 60, 70 tenants, which is going to drive carrier activity. Right. So, you know, we think today that premier, you know, the premier buildings in the Boston office market have the most carriers because they're the biggest and nicest buildings. And people want to be there anyways. So it was really the tenants didn't follow the carriers. The carriers felt followed the tenants. Right. Yep. So, Mike, if I could switch it over to you and ask you, you know, given all the factors that Rich has laid out here, um, where does Wicked Bandwidth fit in? Uh, what is Wicked doing to ensure strong networks in these buildings for tenants? Yeah, that's a great yeah, – that, that, another great question, right? Uh, you know, I think for Wicked um, – we can play the role of a primary provider. You know, we've got a, a very robust internet offering that people could certainly use as a, a primary network. Um, we also have served the role as a backup provider uh, where we're, you know, especially if we've got wireless in a building, it's a completely separate diverse path that allows people to get out of a building without going through the same manholes and risers and all that great stuff. So we've, we've acted as primary and secondary. I mean, with the property owners, we've, you know, we've done a whole bunch of different things where I think, um, 
some have been easy and some have been hard, but I think at the end of the day, adding another network to the building in general is a good thing for their tenant population. And we've just tried to be real flexible about our terms and how we come in and every building's different. So, you know, for us, I think some of the things that we can do for the property owner is when they do have tenants moving in in our lit buildings that have an emergency, we're super flexible on getting folks turned up and getting contracts signed and moving things along so that the first experience that tenant has with the building is a positive one and hopefully the buildings help facilitate that. So, you know, a a whole bunch of different things. Um, You know, and again, Brian taking a little bit of a hard right turn and Rich, I, I don't know if you've got a couple extra minutes here. I'd love to hear from your perspective how the co-working space is impacting the real estate market just in general. Just, you know, because that's something that comes up with us. Now we've got some of our our customers that leased office space, you know, not huge offices, smaller offices, um, are now migrating to the WeWork type environments and, and not staying in their own office space. Um, in general, I mean, just high level, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no shortage of co-working spaces in different co-working companies. I think Boston was kind of on the, the leading trend of that, the, the CIC, the Cambridge Innovation Center, which was founded well, well before we were. Um, it's having a tremendous impact in it. You know, I'm not going to profess to be an office expert. I would rely on one of my colleagues to, to speak to the actual facts. But the amount of square footage that WeWork alone has leased in the city of Boston is well over a half million square feet, which is really significant in terms of uh, their tenancy and, and the percentage of office space they, they are now leasing as compared to the, the total market. Um, tenants like the flexibility. You know, they like to be able to move in and move out, scale up, scale down, and, and clearly are willing to pay a premium to, uh, to have that, that kind of environment. What is really interesting and what has been fascinating, I think, for all everybody in the real estate industry to kind of see is they buy, they buy office space for X, they fit it out, they make it really nice, they add you know, great amenities and, and water and coffee and beer and they sell it for 2X. So I think a lot of landlords are scratching their heads saying, we just built the space for you and you charge two times what we charge you what are we missing here so it's going to be really interesting to see how it how it all plays out over the next decade or so yeah i think one of the things that enables that and again we talk a lot about cloud but the fact that you know applications don't live in the office space anymore means you don't have to tie into the LAN, and so therefore you can work from just about anywhere so i think there's a lot more flexibility in the business process side which probably facilitates more of this office space, but it makes a ton of sense. I mean, you know, the clients that we've had that have moved from traditional office space to co-working spaces have been on massive growth curves or have been in the middle of maybe getting funding or not getting funding. And so they really, there's a lot of uncertainty around the size and the location of their business. So it makes a ton of sense to go into a, a co-working space. Very good. Um, Guys, thank you. Thank you, Rich, for joining us this week. We really appreciate you taking the time. No no problem. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Brian.